0: How you doing? Welcome back to another Faith in the Outdoors podcast. This is Sean McVeigh with Sean's Outdoor Adventures. And in this week, as you can see, I'm flying solo again. Last week, we had my friend Justin Boucher. And the next couple of weeks, I have a few more guests that will be on the podcast with me. But I'm going to take an opportunity this week to address some uh, things that have come up. So a few weeks back, I... I posted a podcast called Faith and Works Are Necessary for, F- for Salvation. And I went back and forth extensively with one person commenting on those videos or that podcast and some of my other videos. And it's clear to me that I, I've, I need to further address the topic of faith and works. And because it's a source of um, difficulty for good, well-intentioned Christians who are not Catholic and uh, are opposed to this whole idea of works. And as soon as they see the word works, they shut down. And so we need to start with prayer. If you happen to be somebody listening right now who believes that salvation is by faith and there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, well, first of all, there is nothing we can do. But what happens is people shut down, they Kind of misinterpret Scripture from that point forward, and it becomes difficult to help lead them to the fullness of truth. And so, this video, I want to start off by addressing faith and works a little bit further, and the sacrament of baptism. I also want to mention um, the synod. Right now, there's a synod of synodality uh, that's going on. The Pope has called a synod, and you know it's common to have synods and. This one's unique in that there's more lay people involved than ever before. But there's been all kinds of reports in the news that, um, you know, this is setting the church up to change church teachings and things like that. And so I'm going to address that because there's some incorrect stuff floating around on that out there. And lastly, I do want to address one aspect of posture or form at the Mass. It's one that um, I've observed for years. And unfortunately, lay people... Uh, We have not really, I'd say, known the, the correct way to maintain our posture during the Lord's prayer. And so I'm going to address that briefly. So let's begin with a prayer because ultimately none of us will grow in our faith. None of us will grow closer to the Lord without God's grace. And the only way to be open to that is prayer. We need to pray. Let's begin by praying to our Father in heaven in the name of His Son, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we need the Holy Spirit to grow in holiness. So we beg you for an increased outpouring of the Holy Spirit right now today, especially in this topic of faith and works. And Father, help all people have an open heart to hear your word, your word, Jesus, Help us be receptive to this message and embrace it wholeheartedly so that we can grow as close to you and your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, not only in eternity, but now, as close to you as possible now. And in order to be able to do that, Lord, we need to be able to see and embrace the fullness of truth. I ask you to bless us in this way, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Okay. I mentioned previously uh, from the second letter of Peter chapter 3 verse 16, he mentions how some of Paul, St. Paul's writings are difficult to understand. Now let's put this in context. Peter walked with Jesus for three years in Jesus's public ministry. Peter made mistakes, he misunderstood, Jesus corrected. It was a process that went on for years. And Peter understood the message of salvation the way Jesus preached it. Now, when he would read the the writings of Paul, sure, he could see what Paul was saying, but he was probably, what he's referring to in 2 Peter 3.16 is that, okay, the way that Paul is wording this can be a little confusing. So let me read 2 Peter 3.16. It says, speaking of this, as he does in all his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So this is actually happening for sincere Christians who love Jesus, who want to follow Jesus. They're like this person who I was going back and forth in comments with. They are misinterpreting and misunderstanding the scriptures. And it's really to their own destruction as far as what God is trying to communicate to them. So let me first read all of these passages this individual sent me. And he started with Romans 3.28, which reads, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So that's the uh, King James Version translation. And most of the other translations I've read is, that we see a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, one of the mistakes Martin Luther made and in, in this individual's making is they're not making a clear distinction between what is works of the law and what is works of charity. And if you haven't read Dr. John Bergman's book, uh, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, I highly suggest reading that. And he mentions in there that The only other place other than St. Paul's writings referring to works of the law where we see that term, works of the law, written about in that time period was the Jewish community at Qumran, which is the community that had what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they referred to the works of the law as the Jewish practices that they believed made them ritually pure or made them holy, essentially made them righteous to be able to stand before God in that context. So works of the law would be things like dietary restrictions or, you know, what defiles a vessel. Like if you had defiled water, you couldn't pour it into a clean vessel and drink it, or you would be defiled. And so those would be the types of laws, works of the law, that Paul is referring to. They thought by doing these things they would become holy. St. Paul is saying no that's not it. It's by faith in Jesus and the grace that we receive from being followers of Jesus in doing what Jesus commands us. That is how we are saved. By following Jesus not these works of the law. Now I've mentioned James 2 24 before where James says, see how we are justified by works and not by faith alone. So what what James is talking about when he's referring to works is our works of love. Okay, works of love are completely different than works of the law, and that's where Martin Luther went off track in the the starting of the Protestant Reformation, and he went as far as to insert the word alone in Romans 3.28, 28, so that it would read, see that we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And when the you know, Catholic priests called him out on that in their debates, he said, no, I'm leaving it in there because I believe it's supposed to be there. So he's adding to the words of scripture. And there is a warning about that in the book of Revelation. I won't get into all that right now. However, we need to distinguish between works of the law and works of charity. And as James says, we're justified by works, which is our love, not our faith alone. And if we look at Jesus's judgment that he explains in Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46, we see that the people who go to heaven are the people who do the acts of love toward others. Though You can go read that yourself, but I'm going to keep reading these quotes from this individual so that I can address it. And I will also mention that part of the problem is because of the foundation of this faith idea is not based on truth, but on misinterpretations and misunderstandings of scripture, and even a false teaching, this faith alone teaching that Martin Luther promulgated. Because that's the foundation, these people are missing what the word of God is truly saying to us. So let me read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and it says this. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So again, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Here is the crucial big separation, my friends. So St. Paul is saying faith in Jesus is the key. Now, to have faith in Jesus means you do what Jesus commanded that's where the breakdown is. So people are separating this idea of faith from what the rest of the New Testament and even the rest of the Bible is indicating to us. And I'm going to get into that in just a few minutes to, so that you can see how this is going off track. But I want to actually quote these other ones first so you can hear them. So this is Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 11:6 is, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, our next one is Galatians 2:16, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith of Je- by the faith of Jesus Christ, then we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Ephesians 1.13 In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And Philippians three eight. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Acts chapter sixteen verse thirty one. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Okay, so taking this in context, St. Paul is talking against the works of the law. In, in like all of these passages, he is depicting faith versus works of the law. In the context of these these letters that St. Paul wrote, he is writing to communities that already heard the first proclamation of the gospel. They already heard that we must be baptized to be saved, and they accepted baptism. They already heard that we must celebrate the Eucharist, the, the body and blood of Jesus, and receive that. And he even talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I believe it's starting at verse 23, going to about 32. But the point is, he, these communities already heard the first proclamation, and then they were going off track. Some of them were resorting to Jewish works of the law, which is not the path of salvation. It's by following Jesus. So the separation has come from like the people who have this faith idea. They're basing it on an idea of what faith is apart from what's actually revealed in the Bible. So what does it mean to put your faith in Jesus? It means to do what Jesus taught. Okay. What did Jesus teach us regarding salvation? Let me just start with some of the things Jesus did in reference to baptism. I'm going to read you what it says from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Very verily I say to you, Except a man be born of water... And of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what I want to pause and say the person who had been writing to me said that baptism does nothing for you, it's just a symbol. And there's nothing in the Bible that says baptism is just a symbol. So here Jesus is saying we must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So we see this this detail in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 5. Now, if you read on to chapter 3, verse 22, it says, After these things came, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. So Jesus, in the same chapter 3, goes on to baptize with the apostles in the area where they were preaching where jesus was preaching now if you read on in fact um i have my bible sitting here i'm gonna just read so that was verse 22 and i'm gonna read the next couple of verses so it says in verse 23 john also was baptizing why was john baptizing because that was what god wanted wanted him to do okay john's baptism was a little different than jesus's baptism and we see that in the book of acts but still There is this detail of God bringing people to baptize. So it says John was baptizing at Aaron near Salem because the water was abundant there and people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you testified, here he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now they're talking about Jesus. And John answered and said to them, so he basically addresses that Jesus is greater than him, and he must decrease, Jesus must increase. But what Is Jesus doing? They're saying he is baptizing. Here we are at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Jesus is teaching his apostles to baptize, and Jesus is baptizing, and it goes on. And then if you look down at chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who were baptized— he left Judea and started back to Galilee. So here we have Jesus saying you must be born of water and the spirit and then in the same chapter he's going around baptizing and having the apostles baptized with a baptism that's different than John's baptism. So this is the this is the actions and teachings of Jesus. Jesus was perfect He did not need to be baptized, yet he had himself baptized to set an example for us. We're supposed to do what Jesus did. And Jesus had himself baptized, and it's at that moment, right after his baptism, where we see the clearest depiction of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, present on earth in one location. That's the most explicit depiction in the whole Bible, as far as I'm aware of. The father's there and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit came down upon him like a dove. So here you have the father, the son, and Holy Spirit at Jesus's baptism because it's that significant of an event. So Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He says, the person who believes and is baptized will be saved. But if he does not believe, he will be condemned. So if obviously, if you don't believe, you're not going to bother being baptized. If you do believe, you are going to go out of your way to be baptized so that you can be saved. How do we know that that's the message of God? Well, let's look at the book of Acts. In the very beginning, right after the Holy Spirit came upon Peter and the apostles, they go out and preach for the first time. This is the first time they're preaching about Jesus because they've now received the Holy Spirit. And if you read chapter two, and then after the people listening heard Peter, this is how they respond. And this is starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So we see in baptism, it is the washing away of our sins so that we can be filled and receive the Holy Spirit. Baptism is not symbolic. Through baptism, God has ordained to wash away all sin and give us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is salvation. It, we are separated from God because of sin and through sin. And through baptism, God is washing away sin. Now, I'm going to just jump over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 is the punchline. But in that passage, Peter is talking about the flood of Noah. And he says this, so the flood of Noah, if you remember from the Old Testament, it washed away all of the wickedness, all the wicked people, all the sinful people on the earth. And God left his righteous man, Noah, and his family and made a covenant with Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply. It was a new beginning through the washing with water. And St. Peter says this prefigured baptism which saves you now. The flood of Noah was not symbolic, my friends. It was a physical, literal purge that took place through the washing with water. And if you think back to when they were the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and they went from slavery to freedom, they went through the water. So Moses lifts his hands, the the sea splits, they go through the water of the sea. And then he lowers his hands, and what happened to the wicked, the Pharaoh and his army that represented Satan and sin? They were washed away through the water. Another prefiguring of baptism. So now let's look at Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit, and the angel Lord. Has Philip go and speak to the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading scripture? Philip's like, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, how can I without someone to explain it to me? So I'm just going to start, jump in here on verse 34 after that interaction. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, He proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Now, we don't hear what Philip says. All we hear here is that he proclaimed the good news about Jesus. The next line says, As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Then he commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azadus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So, what happened here? The eunuch hears the good news preached to him. And what is the response of the eunuch? Look, there is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? As soon as the physical baptism in water takes place, which saves us now, according to 1 Peter 3:21, then the Holy Spirit snatches Philip away because what was needed for salvation was now done. And so Philip was there, seen no more. And the eunuch went his way rejoicing in being brought into the family of God through baptism. So my friends, having faith in Jesus means believing in the teachings of Jesus. What did Jesus say in Mark sixteen sixteen? Whoever believes in and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. If you are not preaching the message that baptism is necessary for salvation, you are not preaching the message of Jesus Christ. If you are saying faith apart from baptism is necessary for salvation, you, my friend, have left the good news. You are not preaching the message of Jesus, but something else. Jesus said in John three five. Unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What did Jesus say? And I've read multiple times. Hey, let's read it again because it's very potent and important. If we look at John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58, what does Jesus say there? Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And the word in Greek for eat there means to chomp and gnaw on. So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have lived because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like your... That which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. Now, this is the teaching of Jesus. What does it mean to place your faith in Jesus? It means to do what Jesus tells us to do. In this case, he's saying, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. That's the person who has eternal life and that he will raise on the last day. For he says his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. Now, Jesus' own disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? That's in verse 60. And then in verse 666, they left Jesus because they did not want to place their faith in this teaching. So, my friends, to have faith in Jesus means to place your faith in, in the teachings of jesus and faith apart from all of jesus's teachings is not going to bring you salvation now we see that in matthew chapter 7 verses i believe it's 21 through 23 jesus says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom but only the one who does the will of my father will enter so what is the will of the father that we do the things that Jesus tells us to do. That's what the father wants. That's why the father sent Jesus was so that we would learn what God wants us to do. And what did we hear Jesus saying he wants us to do? He wants us to believe and be baptized. He wants us to eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. He also wants us to love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves. This is the gospel. Love God, love your neighbor, do these things that Jesus commands you. That's what we place our faith in Jesus. That's what we are called to do. And that's what we are judged on on our day of judgment. As we see in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, the people who went to heaven were the people who loved others, who did good deeds good works for others. They're not earning salvation. They're responding to the teachings of Jesus and placing their faith in the teachings of Jesus. That means when it was difficult to love their neighbor, they did it anyway. When it was difficult to visit the person in prison, they did it anyway, because that's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. So my friends, coming full circle, This idea of faith, apart from the whole message of the New Testament, is incorrect faith. It's incorrect understanding of faith. It's incorrect to say that all you need is faith, because the letter of James makes it utterly clear. We are justified by our works, not our faith alone. So all these references to faith are taken out of context of what it means to have faith in Jesus. To to have faith in Jesus doesn't mean, oh, I believe that Jesus is God, that's it, I'm done. No, (laughs) to believe Jesus is God means you obey the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus said you must be baptized. Peter affirmed that in 1 Peter 3.21, this baptism that saves us now, and in the book of Acts, what we looked at in chapter 2, verses 37-38, that's the response that God calls us to have when we place our faith in him, we must request baptism, just like the eunuch. Look, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized into the family of God? My sins washed away. What? Nothing. Philip went down and baptized him in the water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, my friends, baptism is real. It washes away all sin. If you think that faith apart from baptism will save you, then you are going against the message of the Bible. There is nowhere in the Bible that says baptism is only a symbolic gesture and all you need is faith. That is a man-made lie that is distorting what God has revealed. I don't know how to put it any plainer than that. And I hope that you will read my book. Those of you who have any trouble with this, read my book, become a, a better archer, and use it to avoid sinning because I go into greater detail there. Also, I brought out my my three volume set to, to flash for those who are watching the video this three volume set of books is called the faith of the early fathers by jurgens this is like the first 5 or 600 years of the writings of the fathers of the church like all the prominent figures in christianity for the first 600 years read what they had to say about the teachings of jesus these are the people who are being trained directly by the apostles? How did they understand the message of salvation? What you're going to see is the message the Catholic Church has continued to hold and preach from that time till now, and that you're hearing today in this podcast. So the church, as I've talked about before, has been given the keys of authority by Jesus to the to the head of the church, which is the Pope, and I want to address the synod. Right now there's a synod and synodality going on, and Pope Francis has called for this synod to basically incorporate more lay people than ever before. In the past, it's always been the bishops, and he's uh, because lay people are part of the church. He's trying to bring that component forward so that they have a little bit more participation in the movement of the church. Now, there's been I've read some articles um, by bishops and you know interviews with bishops. And I wanted to clarify something. One of the bishops being interviewed said, you know, he was concerned that this is going to um, be a platform for, you know, the church changing teachings or, or things like that. Let me tell you something. When there is a defined, dogmatic teaching of the church, it cannot and will not be changed. It is definitive. So the church cannot change definitive teachings, and the church will not change. God gave the keys of authority to Peter and the grace to preserve the teaching authority of the church and the teachings of the church. So if you read an article that says that the church is going to change her teachings through this approach to the synod, that's incorrect because the church is protected by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Additionally, it brought up the, the concept of women priests and um, gay marriages and things like that. Now, there are a few rogue bishops who are trying to promote um, maybe exceptions for gay marriages and things like that. But that, those individuals are departing from the, the, the defined teachings that the church has always upheld. The scriptures uphold that it, God made us man and woman. And the man and woman have the ability to, to be fruitful and multiply. And those are grounds for, that are necessary for a valid union, a marriage relationship. And now we have to be sensitive to people who are attracted to members of the same sex because that is obviously a suffering that they will carry throughout life. All of us are called to chastity according to our state of life, which is an incorporation and appropriation of our sexuality in the context of our lives. So as a married man, I am faithful to my wife. I am not allowed according to God's design to be running around with other women because that would be a serious sin. So chastity in my context the context of my life means that I am monogamous. I have one Individual, my spouse, my wife, and even within that relationship, it's not a free for all. We um, practice naturally family, natural family planning, which means we abstain for a lot of the time of our lives in order to avoid pregnancy when it's not when we have discerned that it's not a good time for us to bring a child into the world. So those those of you who are out there who are you know in a marriage and using artificial contraception, that actually goes against the teachings of God. So artificially, you are putting a blocker to God. So natural family planning, you're still open to the possibility of God creating. You are just uh, abstaining for long periods of time when your wife or your, you know, your wife is fertile. And so that's the way you kind of avoid the possibility of conception, but you don't completely rule it out because God can still work with that. Artificial contraception puts a blocker in there to where you are actually saying to God, I'm not allowing you to have any space to create here. And you're also saying to your spouse, I'm not giving you my full self because I don't want the consequence of this action right now. So let me tell you something. When you abstain from coming together, in the marital act for long periods of time, it it takes a lot of effort and it's not easy. You have to, sometimes you have to go sleep somewhere else so that you're not tempted with that when it's a time where you're trying to, you know, abstain for the sake of your discernment of what you think is best for your family and your finances and all that type of thing. Artificial contraception, there's no sacrifice of yourself like there is in natural family planning. You're just, you know, taking medication to prevent that. And so you can come together in the Marrow rock whenever you feel like it. So there's there's not a sacrifice of love and self. But coming full circle, all of us are called to chastity according to our state in life. And those who have same-sex attraction are called to a life of chastity, a life of essentially celibacy. And I know that's hard to hear, but you know what? It's Even if you're able to do it once in a while in marriage, it's still a very difficult task to master yourself and live chastity according to your state in life. So nobody gets a break in this. Nobody who's following Jesus and the teachings passed on by the church gets a break. We all suffer and are challenged. Now, I have four little children, and sometimes when one of them sees what the other has, I want that. You know, They want to take that from the other one, or they, they think if I have what the other one has, then I'll be happy. Let me tell you something. If, if you have same-sex attraction, you're, you're never going to be happy trying to be fulfilled in that and being able to act that out, because God didn't make us to be fulfilled in a relationship with a person. Marriage is a vocation with the procreation as a natural component of that. And in a same-sex union, or marriage, if you want to call it that, it's not possible. It goes against the natural order of God's creation. So disorder came into the world through sin. We all, every single person on earth, struggles with concupiscence, which is the inclination towards sin. So all of us have to battle. Now, those of you who have same-sex attraction, that is a very painful one because a lot of us think, oh, well, if I if I could just be married, then I'd be happy. It's not the case. Marriage is a vocation to holiness, and you will be challenged and put to the test in that type of a marriage, in a type of relationship. So marriage doesn't equal happiness. Marriage equals Hopefully holiness and holiness comes through suffering. <laughs> so uh, the the real a real marriage is not necessarily just like hey this is everyone's happy all the time. Real marriage is your junk is going to be flushed to the surface. You're going to have to deal with it and you have to stay committed to each other through the dealing with the junk. So that's reality. And if if you want marriage just because you think it's going to make you feel good, you 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 don't know what marriage really is then. Anyhow, we need to be loving toward people with same-sex attraction. Hey, it's not easy. I get it. It's not going to be easy for you. And it's not easy for me. It's not easy for anybody. We all have to struggle to appropriate our sexuality. So we embrace you and we want to support you in the living out of that chastity, you're not going to find the happiness you think you're going to find through a same-sex attraction or by having a sex change, like our doctors can now make that happen. That's not going to lead to fulfillment. It's because only God can fulfill us. And if we say, oh, yeah, you can go have a same-sex marriage, you know, we're not help- helping those people find true happiness, and true fulfillment because it can't be found in that relationship. It's not the way God designed it. And if you get angry at, at God for making you the way he did, that's okay. Talk it out with God. He can handle it. He can give you the grace to be fulfilled, find happiness, and be the person he created you to be. It wasn't his plan for any of us to have concupiscence, but we all have it due to sin. Our job now is to love and to battle against sin, to follow Jesus, to do what he asks. Okay, another one was uh, women priests. This is not ever going to happen because it in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church has an understanding of who the church is and who Jesus Christ is and what the role of the priest is. Jesus Christ came to earth as a man. He didn't come as a woman or an it. He came as a man. He has masculine gender and he gave us an inc- an insight into the father in in the the fa- God the father as masculinity as well by calling him father not mother so god has shown us this component of gender in what he has revealed to us now a priest offers the sacraments on behalf of jesus so it is the priest standing in the person of Jesus, who is a man, who is offering the sacraments. Let's, let's broaden the picture for a moment. The most amazing person that's ever lived, aside from Jesus, is his blessed mother, Mary. Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, which essentially makes her the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Mary is the daughter of the Father, the spouse of the Spirit, and the mother of God the Son. No one else in all time in history will ever have the type of relationship with the Trinity that Mary has. Yet Mary was not invited to the apostolic ministry that the 12 men had that Jesus chose. Mary is not upset about that. Mary is very happy with who she is. And it is the role of the bishops and the priests to stand in the person of Jesus, who is a man, to offer the sacraments to who? The church. What is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus, his bride, has femininity. The church is feminine. Jesus is masculine. The priest standing in the person of Jesus, masculine, has to be a man because the church is feminine. The church is the bride of Christ. We receive Jesus into our bodies. Here, let's get sacramental again. When we receive Jesus in the Eucharist, the physical body of Jesus is coming into our body to make us one with him. What happens in the marital act? The physical act of the husband goes into the wife. I'm sorry to have to say that, but that's the real the physical reality of what's happening. He gives to her himself and she receives that. She as the bride receives that the church is the one who receives the physical body of Jesus into her body. So it cannot have a female as a priest because it doesn't represent What is happening in the relationship with Jesus and his spouse, the church, his bride, masculine, feminine. Jesus is not gender confused. Jesus is not same-sex union. Jesus follows the path of his own creation, male and female, he created them. So there will never be female priests in the Catholic Church. Now, there may be people who are upset or offended by that, and that's not intended to be that way. God created us and has a role for each of us. I'm sitting here, a man, a male myself. I cannot bear children. I cannot have a child from my body. Okay, and if I get upset and angry saying, God, I want to be able to have a child of my own body, you know, okay, I need to get that out and get over it because it's not going to happen. That's not the way God, maybe it's not not his plan for me. A woman can do that. So a woman has the ability to do that because it's part of how God created her. She has a different role than I do in God's plan. It's the same with the priesthood. The priest has a different role. And just as a, a man cannot physically give birth to a woman, or excuse me, a baby, a woman cannot fulfill the role of the priesthood in the design of God's plan. Again, I don't say this to upset anyone. It's just the way that God designed us. And we all have a role to play. And guess what? If we're not fulfilling our own role, then we are leaving a gaping hole where God expected and intended for us to fill in humanity. None of us can do this on our own. We all need each other. I need you. You need me. And, um, I keep thinking about this, um, Quote from Mother Teresa that uh, Father Mike Schmitz has said in the Bible in the, I forget if it was the Catechism in the Year or the Bible in the Year podcast. I've been listening to them both, uh, but he, he quoted her saying, we have forgotten that we belong to one another. And that is such an amazing statement. Thank you, God, for St. Teresa of, of Calcutta. Wow, we have forgotten that, haven't we? Let's look at each other and say, you know what? I belong to you, and you belong to me we got to do this together. If we can work together and, and play our role, then look at what we can do. Look at Mother Teresa and what she did. My goodness, what an impact she had as a woman in this world by fulfilling what God called her to. She wasn't arguing about wanting to be a priest. She just accepted her place and loved people to the best of her ability in that, especially the poorest of the poor. So my friends, we're not going to see women priests in the Catholic Church because of what I just explained. We're not going to see changes in the teachings of the Catholic Church. You will see media outlets trying to propose that those things could happen through this synod. It's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit will protect the church because it's the bride of Christ. And Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Oh, there is one other thing I wanted to interject here before closing the podcast. And it'll be a little easier if you're watching the video as opposed to just listening, but I'll try to talk it through just so you can picture it. I wanted to address the um, posture that we have during the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father at Mass. And so we're supposed to have a posture of prayer, which would be either folding your hands or having your palms facing up in the Oron's position, which is a, a sign before God that you come to him with empty hands and you basically need him to fill your hands. So you come before God with hands open. Now, as lay people in the congregation, we're also supposed to not... Imitate the posture of the priest because we're not ordained priests. So when our hands are extended in the Oran's position, they should be kind of like this in front of us, which is that pleading posture, uh, not outstretched to the sides. So if you're watching the video, I just stretch my arms out to the sides, which is kind of more the priest's posture in prayer and mass. We're not supposed to have that posture, so we're really kind of in tighter. You know, arms are actually touching against our body as opposed to being spread out. And one of the things I've observed, you know, over, you know, especially the last 10 years, I would say especially, um, a lot of people hold hands during the Our Father, which, you know, in one sense is a friendly gesture and, and – things like that but it's actually not the directive that we're supposed to be following as lay people so when i stand with my hands palms facing up in the aurons positioning i stand before god and showing my need for him i'm like i'm praying and saying god i need you i need you to fill my empty hands because i cannot do it on my own so the language of holding hands with each other changes the message of the prayer posture. And so when we're holding hands with the people next to us, we're kind of like, hey, we're in this together. We got each other and uh, we're united. and And that is great if that's the message that the church was calling us to exhibit during the Lord's Prayer. But we're not actually called as a body of believers to give that message at that time in the liturgy. So I want to make an appeal to those listening. You know, let's be conscious of our prayer posture at Mass because that's what we're there to do. We're there to worship and pray. And part of it, it, we express ourselves through our body. We are body, spirit, people. We have a body and a soul, and we express ourselves through our body. So when we are expressing ourselves in prayer, we are expressing ourselves with and through our body. So I would encourage you in the Lord's Prayer at Mass to either fold your hands like you know in front of you and just really focus your mind on the prayer that we are saying together as a community. Or you you can open your hands in the Oran's position. But really it's really my understanding and and probably partly my opinion that we should maintain a prayer posture of orons with our palms facing up, but not imitating the prayer posture of the ordained priest, because we are different than the ordained priest, and we should help express that through our body by having a different prayer posture than the ordained priest who stands in the person of Christ at Mass. So I wanted to interject that because I really feel like it's not being addressed Globally in the church, the bishops aren't really addressing it. Maybe they don't feel the need to. But as one lay person to another, I hope to inspire us to follow what the intention of the church is for us in our prayer posture during the liturgy at mass. And and you know, I guess before I leave the topic, I can mention there are a few other um, components of prayer posture that the church calls forth from us during the liturgy. In the penitential rite in the beginning, we are to kind of beat our breast through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, we say during the penitential rite when we're, you know, repenting for sin. And we, um, we beat our breasts in a sense um, to, in, to imitate or to communicate that we are heartfully sorry that uh, we have sinned. Some other prayer postures is uh, during the creed. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, when we're saying that detail, the Creed, we actually bow at the waist. It's a profound bow that Jesus was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So we are profoundly bowing at the waist. We're bending over at the waist. It's not just a little head nod. It's a profound bow acknowledging the incarnation. It's a, a profound reverence for Jesus Christ in humbling himself to take on our human nature through the incarnation. So we bow at the waist to, um, to acknowledge and honor that and to glorify God for that. And when we receive Jesus in the Eucharist, we're also called to make a profound reverence before receiving and I, I feel like, um, you know, at least when I went through my training in that, it's, it's similar to the profound bow at the waist. So you're, you're profoundly bowing. When it's your turn to receive the Eucharist, you bow at the waist. And then when the priest, deacon, or extraordinary minister of the Eucharist holds up the host and says, the body of Christ, we say amen. But we make a profound reverence to the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist before receiving him. And it's not just like a little head nod or, or something that we just totally omit. We're called to do that by the church. And that is a witness to the world. Like we believe this is the true body of Jesus, and we want to give honor, glory, and respect to God for that. And so at Mass, we are communicating that through the actions of our body. And if you have a bad back, you know obviously that will limit your ability to bow. But if you are perfectly healthy, we're talking about a profound reverence here. And I also, I mean, I went through uh, the religious order for three and a half years discerning my vocation, and we genuflected before receiving Jesus in the Eucharist. So I like to maintain that that manner or that gesture, although the church kind of calls for a profound bow um, as a, maybe a preference even. Uh, there are people who do the genuflection. There are even some people who kneel down and receive communion while kneeling. Um, but I I tend to either bow profoundly at the waist or genuflect. I actually have a, a lower back issue that sometimes flares up. So it's easier for me to keep my back vertical and genuflect as opposed to bow profoundly at the waist sometimes. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to address that. Our prayer posture, our body language at mass really should communicate our worship of God, our acknowledgement of God's presence, and our love for the Lord Jesus. And it is to communicate to others what we believe. We do believe this is Jesus in the Eucharist. That's why we kneel during the Eucharistic prayer, is because we believe Jesus is becoming present, and we want to give honor and respect to Jesus by kneeling at that time during the liturgy. Whew. So that's uh, I'm going to bring things to a close here today. That's a lot of, that's some heavy stuff today. So today's podcast carries a lot of weight and a lot of important teachings. Again, I'm going to recommend my book, uh, Become a Better Archer and Use It to Avoid Sinning. If you have any difficulties with the whole faith and works idea, I really go to great length in the theology chapter, in chapter four that's in that book, to show you where the Bible comes from. How to correctly understand the bible in the context that it's all given and to understand the full message of the bible not taking out little pieces like on faith alone and and misunderstanding the rest of scripture because of that so it's a great resource also uh i mentioned jesus and the dead sea scrolls by dr john bergsma that's a great book i recommend and faith of the early fathers by jurgens uh this is a great book on the early writings of the church Go through them, read them, bring them to prayer. Don't just think about this from your own reasoning. If you ever have a difficulty with something, bring it to prayer. This is all about us growing closer to Jesus. Who's going to help us? The Holy Spirit is. So bring it to prayer. Bring all of it to prayer. Anything that's difficult, bring it to prayer. And God will guide and help you if you let your your heart be soft and guidable by the Holy Spirit. Don't be hard-hearted or hard-nosed and hard-headed. Just be docile, open, and be ready to obey what God leads you to. Read the early church fathers, and what did they say? You're not going to find in there a lot of the popular teachings in fundamentalist, non-denominational Protestant theologies, because it's not what God taught us, those things came as a fabrication in the 16th century. So thank you again for tuning into the podcast today. I'm going to bring it to a close. And in a special way, I want to say, God bless you. And God bless your search for the fullness of truth that Jesus has revealed. Please listen to the Holy Spirit and bring it to prayer. God bless you <sharp inhale>